Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Bob Batchelor. Today, I am with the eminent Jerome Charon, and we're going to talk about his new novel, Ravage and Son. Welcome to the show, Jerome. Welcome, Bob. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, my pleasure. It's been um, quite an adventure reading this wonderful book. I would want, I wonder if we could begin just tell our listeners a little bit about the book. Uh, No spoilers, though. Don't give away too much. No. Well, um, it's about the Lower East Side at the beginning of the 20th century. It's about a Jewish uh, Dr. Jekyll and Hyde who sort of um, rips apart prostitutes on Allen Street, which was the red right, led right, excuse me, red light district in the, on the Lower East Side where young Jewish girls would parade and they had their, their pimps. And um, it, it was terrifying because women had so few opportunities. And this is what I wanted to write about. They had no place else to go, either get married at 15 or become a prostitute. And so uh, it was horrifying. Yeah, we meet pretty quickly Lionel Ravage. We then later meet his illegitimate son, Ben. And the story revolves around these characters, but such such a wonderful cast of characters. It's really, in my mind, as I was reading it, cinematic. Do you have that kind of feeling as you're writing it? Are you, is it, is it unraveling to you like a film? or something Uh, different? I grew up on film, so it's not surprising that uh, there would be a cinematic quality, but that would be unconscious. I'm I'm mostly interested in the music of the words, and the words then can describe a kind of picture or landscape, but it's not like the rolling of a camera, though I I am very much influenced by film, and uh, I was a teacher of film. One of the things that um, 
I read a, uh, an interview with you where you said um, essentially that your career has been, quote, writing comics, comic books in novel form. I felt a sense of that in Ravage and Son, that I felt it in a lot of your books that, that some of the heroes, they're not fully heroic. And they also seem to me to have some superhero type powers. Yeah, well, I, I did grow up on comics. And um, so it's not surprising that there would be a resemblance between the novels and, and comic books, and I still do comic books for adults, I mean, graphic novels. Uh, but when I write a script for a graphic novel, I, it's basically an outline, and a novel is never an outline. In other words, the fabric of the novel can't be an outline, or you don't have a novel. You know, it's fabric. Yeah. And, um, so there's an essential difference there but you could say that they spill out like comic books as they go from scene to scene you know as they as you would move from panel to panel you might be moving from scene to scene yeah that's very interesting um when i think i'll give you an example with monk eastman he seemed to be able to dodge bullets or right. you know be in scraps with 10 other people and come out right. victorious. Some of the same things it seemed to me, though Though Isaac Sedell took his shots, he also seemed at times to have these either otherworldly strength or the ability to appear and, and kind of disappear. And that's, to me, a flavoring of a comic book superhero. Yes, I think, I think you're, you're, you're right. Uh, it, it, you know, I, I, I loved Captain Marvel when I was a kid because I loved the art. I didn't like the art of Superman. It was too realistic. But uh, the art of, of Captain Marvel was uh, was wonderful. So I, I remember I did start out as an artist. I had no talent, but I could recognize good art. And I've worked with some of the best artists in Europe on, on graphic novels. And when... I see my script turned into images. It, 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 you know, even the artist can get all the credit. I don't really care. It's, it's a very kind of, it's very magical to me when I see what I write turned into images, because ultimately, I think the novelist wants to turn the words into images, but you can't. You don't have that power. You don't have that magic. So uh, when the artist can do that. Um, it's very powerful to me. One of the things that I really enjoy, and I think readers are going to love about this book, like they did with Big Red, like they did with Sergeant Salinger, you're able to capture these moments in time and the, de the level of detail, the, the level of narrative combined with historical fact woven into this beautiful fabric is really something that I think people who haven't read you, anybody listening that, that hasn't enjoyed your work, this is something that stands out and it really does in, in the new novel. Well, Bob, you know, this novel went through many versions. It took me 10 years to write. And uh, the prologue is what I wrote last. And I think you need the prologue because 
you have a villain, but you know, you want to see why the villain became a villain. I mean, what twisted him, what turned him into the monster that, that he became. So once I wrote the prologue, I was able to shift the novel around. So as I say, it, it was a 10-year process. There were many, many drafts. That's a great point, um, following up on that. First, I'll ask you a point because, you know, people want to know things, and you've probably heard these questions a million times. Where did the idea come from? How did you do it? I mean, that's like consistently what people want to know from writers, <laughs> those two things. So with the 10 year, let's spin that a little bit, 10 years to write the book, does it stay with you in some form in the back of your mind? Do you feel like it's percolating over that decade long period? Is well, there an ache there to, to, to get the story out? Well, you see, uh, what was happening is, is I had another publisher and when he went through the draft, it took him about six months. So then I would go back to the novel and then, you know, go back and work on the revisions that he made. So um, I, I had time to think and um, and time to revise and time to change. And, and as I've said earlier, you, your, your, your main idea is I'm a comic writer, so I'm interested in humor. But the real resonance that I want is to break the reader's heart. I want you to cry. If you don't cry after reading the book, I'm not going to be happy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I wrote down, if I showed you this piece of paper, my notes, goal, right. colon, quote, break the reader's heart. So right. I know that that's one of the goals. Yeah. In Lionel, we have, you call him a monster. I wrote down devil, and I love this line. He loved to ruin whatever he could. Endings always enticed him. Let others learn to live with his scars, find their heads on fire. Beautiful line. Yeah, thank you. How does creating a devilish monster like Lionel battle with your comedic side and, and the, the witty part of you as a novelist? Well, the thing is, you know, a, a novel can be anything so long as it succeeds. And the thing is, if it, if it were simply a comic novel, it wouldn't have the resonance, the depth. Remember, it's about the Lower East Side, perhaps the saddest place uh, in the whole of the United States uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. It was the most crowded place in the world. There was extreme poverty and extreme crime. And the, the origin of this was a Jewish police force called the Kahila. And what happened is that the German Jews uptown were really disturbed by all the crime on the Lower East Side. So they had their own police force, the Kahila. And the Kahila cooperated with the ordinary police force to catch Jewish criminals. But of course, you know, that in the end just can take you so far. It's very linear. It doesn't, it doesn't, you know. You're, you're, you're writing one passage, you don't have the whole symphony there in that one thing. So my hero is an agent of the Kahila, but the Kahila is just as corrupt as the, as the cops themselves. And so his task, Ben, who is the illegitimate son of Lionel, his task is to fight for the poor on the Lower East Side, which was always my task, which was always what I believed in as a child. 
my superhero, I mean, didn't kill villains. He, he, he fought to save the poor. Wow. Yeah, that's a great, um, that's a great explanation and, and worldview that you're bringing to this. Did you have, first of all, when I first read about the Kahila, I, I thought to myself, it, was this a real thing? Yes, immediately. It was. It was. And then the historian part of me is like, how how can I be? I like take my PhD away because I never knew about this. How how did you no, stumble I, across this? Nobody knew about it. Well, how did I? Well, by reading about the Lower East Side, you know, research is an interesting thing because you're reading book after book and you're just looking for one detail. And once I discovered in the reading that there was this. Uh, Jewish police force uh, that worked hand in hand with the cops and were just as corrupt. Um, then I said, well, you know, this is really interesting. They were paid by the uptown German Jews to get rid of crime in the Lower East Side so that Jews wouldn't be considered criminals. And then uh, it's like a rose that sort of starts to bloom in a very, but blooms in a very, very strange way that you can never depict. You know, it's a flower that uh, that goes, uh, you know, uh, that lives and dies, you know, in, in a perverse way. So um, my hero is part of the Kahila, but he really isn't. He's fighting the police and the Kahila at the same time. Yeah, and I think that readers are really going to enjoy. I think, you know, as I ask about the cinematic feel, I think it's the fact that there are so many figures who become like guest stars in your novels. Like in yeah. this, you have Frank Woolworth. And yeah. there's probably 10 of us in the United States who have, are thinking about Frank Woolworth on any given day. I happen to be one of them. And then I read uh, Ravage and Son and you're bringing him to life. It's, it's amazing to me. And there are so many others. I didn't realize uh, uh, the editor, Cahan, he was a real person either. Yes, yeah, he was. He founded the Forward and Woolworth. You know, you have the Woolworth Building, and if you look in, in the lobby of the Woolworth Building, there is an image of of Woolworth. You know, um, and he did want to, you know, build these five and dime stores everywhere. And of course, if they had been, if it had come to the Lower East Side, we have that terrible word, gentrification, and it mm -hmm. would have cast out so many of the, the poor Jews. And, and the thing is, it's something that always troubles me. Where do the poor go? Where are they going to live? How are they going to survive? And if we don't solve that problem, we don't solve the problem of the country. So even yeah. though this is not a philosophical or political tract, it really deals with the essential problems of what's happening in this country. Yeah, and I know that that's a, a subject that's close to your heart with your own experiences in the Bronx, yes. where, uh, you know, the highway rips out neighborhoods and lives are destroyed, and it's all done in the name of progress. Right, progress and money, but behind the progress, always look for the dollar bill. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> now that's a that's a mantra. I think a lot of people live by. I think you could a lot of good stories based on that um, idea. One of the other things that that I read in an earlier interview with you um, talked about your exploration, the violence of everyday life that that you are interested in 
the quote, the trauma and wounds. And that very much comes alive in, in the new novel. It's, you, you've captured that era so well. And like you say, full of crime, extreme crime, extreme poverty. It's as if people are feeding in on one another. Yes, it's it's uh, it's a kind. There's a kind of cannibalism that occurs when uh, people are overcrowded, and you can see that with mice. If you overcrowd mice, they begin to eat each other. It's very simple. It's very clear. I mean, I mean, I'm a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the the thing is, what what I wanted to also include is a kind of poetry, because. As a child, I visited the Lower East Side every Sunday. I visited my grandparents, and to be truthful, I, I didn't enjoy being around them. So I would walk around the streets, and uh, um, there was a there was a magic in these markets, these these shopping streets, these cafes, uh, which which had their their own life. And of course, my grandparents lived right behind the forward building, so I always saw that. On, on East Broadway. And also what was interesting is that there was the one Republican Party club probably in all of Manhattan right on the same block. Because if we think of what the Republicans are doing to the Democrats, the Democrats did to Republicans in New York City. You know, there's always mm -hmm. a fight for survival. I didn't, um, clearly I wouldn't have known that about um, your your grandparents, but it's it's an amazing aspect. What I think, you know, if I could tell a young person who's who's into writing and, and loves books, I want to introduce them to your work because you've covered so many different eras. I can't think of an era in American history that you haven't covered. And the the idea that I think is interesting, particularly for young writers, is that you, you, there are two things that you said that I think are really fascinating. You called the novel an organic breathing monster at one time. Yeah. And yeah. then you also said, every book is about me. And it's, it's that filter, uh, the filter of this brilliant storytelling backed by this great research, lived experience, and, and you bring it together. I think, I think it's really a role model for the way that, that young writers can, can put stories together. Well, I think you have to do them all. I mean, if you, do, if you don't do the research, if you don't find, everything exists in the details. And that's why I say a novel is like a fabric, whereas a screenplay is an outline. And, and, and you do it in the least possible words. But in, in the novel, you must recreate the scene. You, you must take a spin, like a film, when you see the opening scene of, of uh, you know, uh, of what, what happens in, in, uh, in, in New York City in the 19th century or whatever. Sometimes when you go to the movies and you see a scene, just the landscape, it's overpowering, it's magical, it's bewildering. Well, I try to do the same with words is to recreate what something looked like, what something seemed like, and also the sound of the words creates a kind of music. And that's, uh, and you're trying to do all this at once and you can't leave out any of the elements. If you don't know the history, well, you can make up whatever you want, but in order to make it up, you must know what really happened uh, 
behind what you know what you're knitting or what you're sewing or what you're doing. There has to be something, some substance behind what you're doing. And if that substance isn't there, then everything sinks. You don't believe it. And very often I'll start a novel and I'll read the first sentence and it, it's a kind of a joke and I just can't go beyond it. Yeah. I read, um, you know, many times I've heard you to, to talk about this, that that sometimes it takes you months to get that first sentence perfect. Yeah. And that seems, nothing is that is the, ever perfect, the gateway? Uh, nothing is ever perfect, but <laughs> the first sentence has to take you into the romance of, the, you know, it's Aladdin's lamp. And you, you have to sort of find your way into the landscape. And very often, you know yourself, when you're reading a book, you can't enter it. Something is wrong. You don't know what it is. And that's because the author hasn't created that interior world that you need to enter. Yeah, that's um amazing way to look at it. In, in my own books, because I focus so much on nonfiction, I try to pick out the one a, a defining moment, even if it's a small moment, it could be a big moment or 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 it could be something smaller where everything changed. And then right. I tried to to speak about that or or recreate that in a way. Now it's it's a lot different, certainly now when somebody can probably just YouTube that moment and maybe it adds to it, maybe, maybe it doesn't. I don't, I don't know, but it's it's my feeble attempt at at following what I've heard you say about you know, letting somebody in and the, the magic lamp is an interesting way to, to um, identify that. Well, the YouTube is not going to change anything because the YouTube can't, is not poetry. You know, it may be, it may mesmerize, the vision may mesmerize you, but poetry is poetry. So, you know, you can't find, you know, a substitute for AI is not going to bring us Emily Dickinson. I can guarantee you that. Yeah, that's for true. That, that that is definitely the truth. Um, one of the things when I was reading the book, when I was reading Ravage and Son, enjoying the heck out of it, there's certainly echoes to Jekyll and Hyde. The, the cert echoes to Don Quixote. I, I felt, you know, and maybe it's just my college reading of great expectations there's some great expectations i, I think i expectations I, I i would i would just stop you there the opening scene of great expectations where pip is turned upside down and sees the world upside down well that's where my novels are it's the boy tipped upside down looking at the world in a, in a way that you've never seen before and also i wrote an introduction to jekyll and hyde which is still in print so maybe we can find it for you yeah the uh and i think i was going to add as well great gatsby there's yeah. but maybe gatsby. just to me everything is a little bit great gatsby-esque yes. but... I, I would say that the, the wonder of great gatsby is that it was written in the particular time i mean very often when you want to do an historical novel you know you, you can get the right detail but when he talks about a a maroon colored car and you can only someone who went through the experience of that time could give you details like that. I mean, he went through it. So Gatsby, even though it's totally invented, is really a creature of the twenties. And and Gatsby is 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 a magical book because it it just recreates a world that 
you know, that is lost to us, but that, you know, it takes you right into it. You're right there. You know? And the party that Gatsby throws and and Gat, Jay, you know, Jay Gats suddenly becoming Jay Gatsby. I mean, the reinvention of the self, which is what all America is about, reinvention, you know. Yeah, and I think with with Lionel Ravage, even though he's a monster and 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 in my mind, like the devil, he's certainly evil. When you presented his backstory, what what seemed to make him insane was lost love. Oh yes, yeah. I, I think without the 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 uh, the prologue, the novel, you know, I didn't have the prologue at first. So you know, the prologue explains where he came from, and also I didn't have Manya, you know, the woman he loved, coming back again. You know, that was added later, and and of course the the wonderful cat Chloe is sort of uh, the phantom of my own cat Chloe, so who rules us completely and overpowers us and oversmart, you know, is is much more clever than we are. So we end up being the servants of the cat. But I wanted to have this romance between Lionel and the cat and the loss of the cat and the loss of his love sort of turned him, you know, into, into a monster. You know? Yeah, that very much came through. And I think readers are really going to enjoy that aspect. I was wondering if the ode to Chloe was based on your own love for uh for cats so i'm glad that you've confirmed i didn't that. love i didn't love cats at all it's just that one day uh lenore brought up one of her cats i don't know why i think someone was staying there and the cat completely hid under uh my bookcase and then two two days later it was about 10 inches on the side of my bed and the cat was right there sleeping and was my best friend after that that's probably because nobody stayed with the cat during the day. So it's Lenore's fault. <laughs> yeah, the um, I'm a, a lifelong cat lover and have had cats most of my life. And so people say, you know, we'll go somewhere and the, the people in the home will say, my cat hates everybody, but within 30 seconds, the cat's on my lap. And so they, they tease me that I'm the cat whisperer. So am I. So am I. You know, animals love me. I don't know why. Well, that's awesome. It's a it's a great little tidbit. I I know I've I know how much you you enjoy this cat in your life now. So it's it was great to see that in Ravage and Son. Yeah, but of course the cat has a terrible fate. Yeah, yeah, sadly, but 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 it's important. So the cat had to um, pass to to or be be murdered essentially. I mean, it's a a, char a character that's murdered that that propels the story in a in a very key way so it makes it makes sense one of the things that that the, the casual reader of jerome charon might not know but i certainly enjoy and a lot of people have have talked to you about over the years is this this perception of your writerly voice as music I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that. I I enjoy as a person who's taught writing, as who attempts to still serve that apprenticeship each day. I, I really enjoy the way that you you talk about writing as as a, a form of music. Yes, I think the the each sentence has to have a kind of rhythm, 
remember, I, I started out not writing poetry, but reading poetry. So I was very attuned to the, the rhymes within the sentence itself. And I would be very extreme by saying that the meaning of a sentence comes from the music. And that is from the emotion of the music. And you wouldn't think about that when you hear, listen to a symphony by Beethoven or a sonata by Mozart. I mean, you you know, there, there is almost a narrative in, in the sounds that you hear. So for me, uh, the, the music, the music of the sentence in each sentence is essential. And each each sentence has its own story. And this and if if you're if you're working right, the space between the sentences themselves will also tell a story. Okay, now maybe, you know, the thing is, everything is always about failure. You never succeed in doing what you want to do. But, you know, even in that failure, you try to do as best you can. So to me, the real story is in the spaces between the sentences, in what the reader can imagine is really happening. Yeah, which is a great point, something that you share with a lot of other great writers, um, including Hemingway. Yes, yeah. Definitely. Um, we're running out of time. We have about 10 minutes left, but I wanted to get just a little bit into your background because somebody who's new to your work, they might read the back cover of your book and say, oh, this, you know, 50 books, he must come from a, a charmed life or, or, you know, have been wealthy, come from a, a particular background, but, but you're not at all. <laughs> No, I think that your story is important. Your your background is important for understanding your work. So maybe you could just speak a little bit to, to that point. Well, my parents were both immigrants and, and barely spoke English. So, uh, you know, the languages I picked up uh, was sort of the language of the street, you know, going into the street and hearing the way other kids talked and also reading comic books comic books were incredibly important to me because the the violence of the motion from panel to panel is really what interested me when i say violence is that a really great artist is going to have a whole world between each panel and i think of the uh um george herman's uh, crazy cat for example is as the prime example of, uh, of, uh, of, to me, great comic comic art is that it has its own hysteria, its own magic, and its own movement. And the movement from panel to panel is also a kind of music. You know, maybe not in the superhero that that you see, but uh, in you know, in 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 great art, there's always a sense of music. It seems to me. And the thing is having grown up with any without any language at all, the only thing I had in my head was imagination. And I lived on that imagination. And that imagination was always there. Now, I, you know, I was constantly depressed. So when you're depressed, you really can't write. But when you're not, you know, you can... I remember once when I was teaching at Princeton, I finished a novel in the morning, and while I was riding the train to Princeton... I started the first sentence of another novel, not because I write quickly, I don't write quickly at all. But if the music is there, it's there, you know. And that's what you, you hope and 
you you hope will remain with you, but it, it, it doesn't always happen. I wonder if we can bring the interview to a close with some reflection from where where do you think this fountain of creativity comes? I, I think of like Norman Mailer, who I know you you knew well. Mailer felt like it, it, it you had a certain reservoir and when you ran out, <laughs> that was it. And so you had to keep having experiences to to kind of recreate or or add to your own depth of creativity. I wonder at this point in your career, so many books, so many successes, graphic novels, nonfiction, if you think about how, where did that well of creativity, where does that continue to, what are you, where are you tapping into this in your own mind? I think you're, you know, strangely, you're fully mature as a writer by the age of five, even though <laughs> you've never written a word, but somehow you are fully formed. And the, you know, the, the world, I, I, I can remember being a child of five. And I remember the imagination. I didn't think of writing novels, but I was already a novelist. And I think by the time Joyce Carol Oates was 10, she probably, you know, in her own mind had written 15 novels. So the, 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 the strange thing is either you have the music or you don't. And, and that's not... Um, an easy thing to find, but I do feel that you're fully formed by the age of five. And, you know, the reservoir that Mailer talks about, I think one of the problems is that, quote, the more famous you become, the more exposed you are to what's out there and your internal life sort of recedes. When you're living totally an internal life and you have very little um concourse with what's out there then you you can create you know as much as you can i mean you're going to have bad moments i mean for example my first novel was about an old man i was a young person thinking of old people and now when i write fiction i'm only writing about young people and it's not because i'm growing old it's because i i'm i'm you know just reversing reversing the sequence that's very interesting it's a uh... Uh, Benjamin Button kind of situation, yeah, yeah, to some degree. Well, the one of my stories is called "The Man Who Grew Younger." Yeah, yeah. Well, I I know we only have a couple minutes left, and this has gone by in a flash. I absolutely uh, enjoyed Ravage and Son. It's yet another great novel. I can't wait for the next one. Um, <laughs> I wonder if you want to give give listeners a little taste. I, I know you have some things in, in the pipeline. Well, I've actually finished a novel on Maria Callas. Uh, I, I saw, um, um, you know, a documentary about her, and I immediately fell in love with, uh, uh, with her. I mean, she seemed like my twin, you know, so I, I've written a novel about Maria Callas. And then I decided I wanted to do a novel for young adults, which sort of will retrace my own history, but, you know, in a very, very disguised way. So um, I'm working on that, and the novel on Maria Callas is, is finished, and, and she fascinates me because uh, she had such a gift and, and such a sad life at the same time. We have exactly three minutes left. So I'm going to ask you 
a quick question, which you can, you can answer within three minutes, or they can be one word answers. Yeah. Uh, if you had the choice or you had the ability to have a chat, half hour chat, one living writer, one dead writer, who would they be? Well, I, I would love um, to chat with Emily Dickinson. Um, and I enjoy chatting with Joyce Carol Oates because in some sense, she's almost like a twin of mine. She grew up in, in many of the same circumstances from a poor background and she's totally creative. She loves every kind of genre. I, I don't write the same way, but I admire her ability to move from genre to genre. And she's also a wonderful, wonderful critic. I mean, she understands literature in a way that, and she wrote this incredible book on boxing. And yeah. I know I don't want to be a sexist by saying, how does a woman know so much about boxing? But it's an incredible book. I mean, I was amazed. I couldn't believe she had written it. Yeah. So okay, that's yeah. great. I thought you would pick Melville, but uh, I should have known Dickinson. Would be I, I would, I would pick Melville, except that um, um, I, I think that Dickinson stays with me more because because of the music of the language, and Melville is still coming from the nineteenth century, and the sadness that he brings to his text remains with me, but. The, the whiplash of the, of the language really comes from Emily Dickinson. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, you know, a lot of New Book Network, New Books Network listeners are academics and people who teach writing. And let me tell you, as a, as a, as a former academic, Jerome Charon is a writer that you should have on your syllabus that that we should be teaching to to up and coming writers and, and people who just love good storytelling. So I appreciate you coming on the on the podcast and and deeply respect the work. Well, thank you so much. Stay well. <laughs>